0: Get to it however you want to. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you in the Pew Bibles. I'm not sure what page it's on, but there's a table of contents at the front that will let you know where the book of Galatians is. Uh, Many of you may be familiar with uh, Charles Dickens, his famous novel, Oliver Twist. Um, Oliver Twist is a story that takes place in the mid-1800s at the height of the Industrial Revolution in London where orphans were often required to to work in these labor labor camps. It was during the time of what was called the Poor Law in England where child labor laws were very loose. And it's the story of Oliver Twist. His, His mother dies in childbirth, And his father mysteriously disappears, and so little orphan Oliver has to be raised by the system, if you will, in London. And so at the time that he's nine years old, he goes and lives under the supervision of a sadistic and cruel man named Mr. Bumble. Mr. Bumble liked to beat the boys. He liked to shame the boys. He got a lot of sadistic glee out of corporal punishment. And these boys hardly have anything to eat. They go hungry. And if you remember the famous scene either from the movie or the book where Oliver comes with his little bowl, his hands trembling, and what does he say to Mr. Bumble? Please, sir, I want more. And what happens? Mr. Bumble gets really, really angry and upset, threatens to have Oliver hanged, Drawn and quartered. He flogs him, he canes him in front of the other boys, makes him go live in solitary confinement in the dark, feeds him animal scraps, and then later on he has to live in the coffins with an undertaker. And Oliver Twist is, is really pretty realistic. Charles Dickens paints for us a very realistic picture of life in the mid 1800s in Industrial Revolution. London, where the conditions were very, very dreadful, especially for children. Now, why do I bring up this whole issue of Oliver Twist? Orphans, corporal punishment, almost like being under a harsh taskmaster like Mr. Bumble. Why do I bring these issues up? Well, Paul addresses these particular issues head on in our text before us this morning about being imprisoned about being orphaned about being under a harsh taskmaster but before we actually dive into the text I want to ask you a very basic question hopefully you can all answer this question here's the question what is a Christian now there's a lot of different ways we can answer that question what's a Christian you can say well a Christian is a a sinner who's been saved by grace A Christian is one whose sins have been forgiven. A Christian is one who's been born again. A a Christian's one who's been justified by faith alone. Your, Your sins have been taken away and you've been given the righteousness of Christ. And all of those answers are great. They're all biblical. And justification by faith alone has been a major theme in the book of Galatians. But let me just Just challenge your thinking for a moment. You can have all of your sins forgiven. You can be declared not guilty in God's courtroom and yet still not have a relationship with the judge. You can have all of your sins forgiven and still not be in the family. What's a Christian? What if I said it this way? A Christian is simply someone who has God as their father. A Christian is one who's been adopted into God's family. You see, adoption takes it one step further than just having your sins forgiven. Adoption is family language. It means intimacy. It means you're brought into God's family with all the rights and all the privileges of what it means to be a child of God. J.I. Packer in his famous book, Knowing God. and If you've never read Knowing God, every Christian probably needs to read Knowing God. In his chapter on adoption, J.I. Packer says this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, It means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. If you don't think about God as your loving, heavenly Father who's adopted you into his family. So here's the big idea of our passage this morning. Here's the big idea. Here's what our passage is going to teach us. Being adopted by God as your Father is the highest privilege of your salvation. Now, there's a lot of blessings that come from your salvation. There's a lot of things we could talk about, but one of the highest privileges of your salvation is being adopted by God. So let's read this together and see how Paul paints for us a picture of adoption, how Paul paints for a picture of of slavery, of, of a harsh taskmaster. All of these images are going to come to life in our passage of Scripture before us. So Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 23. Galatians 3, starting in verse 23. "...through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise." Now, what Paul's going to do in this passage of Scripture, he's going to lay out for us two contrasts, two contrasts. And you can very clearly see what these contrasts are by the words under and the words in. So here's the first contrast. Contrast number one, being imprisoned under the law leads to traumatic despair under the law last week we looked at this in a great detail we're not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning the law is like a mirror held up to us to show us that we cannot keep it it's it puts us in the bondage of the spirit it drives us to our knees to realize that we fall short of god's law we fall short of god's standard we cannot keep god's law and therefore we need a savior And notice verse 23, before faith came, we were held, the original language, we were continually held. It was a continually, we were continually being held under the law. Under the law. Notice the language Paul uses there. Under the law. You're under the weight of the law. You're under the sentence of the law. The law is like a death sentence hanging over your head. You are under the weight and power and bondage of the law before faith came. Not only that, notice what else Paul says in that verse. You were imprisoned. You were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So you were held captive, you were imprisoned by the law. Now, I don't mean to offend anybody that works at DOC, because I know probably half of you do, or are related to somebody, but picture in your mind a cranky, surly sergeant that loves putting prisoners in prison, and just is cranky all the time, and always gets on prisoners. That's what Paul's image here is of the law, The Ten Commandments, God's law in your life as a non-Christian, as someone who doesn't have Christ, it's like a sergeant, it's like a jailer that's just putting you in prison and you're in the bondage of despair and all you want to do is you want to get out. We spent a lot of time on that last week, so I'm not going to spend much more. But Paul uses another metaphor to describe the law in verse 24. There's no good English translation for this word. Okay. I'm just, I wish the word was used as it was in the Greek, but you, you have different translations. Some of them aren't helpful. Some of them are confusing. Look at verse 24. So then the law was our guardian. The ESV uses the word guardian. The New American Standard uses the word disciplinarian. King James is not helpful at all because it uses the word schoolmaster. It's the actual Greek word pedagogas. I'm not going to make you say that. We get the word pedagogy from it or pedagogical pedagogos. Now let me explain to you. I said there's a lot of explaining I got to do today. Okay. What was a pedagogos? In that ancient culture where Paul was writing, a child was born into a wealthy family and it was raised by a wet nurse until the age of six. At the age of six, a child came under the supervision of of a pedagogos until they were almost an adult, until they were in late teenage years. So the formative years of a child, you were being raised fundamentally by a pedagogos. And the pedagogos was a disciplinarian. They followed you wherever you went. They were always whispering in your ear, don't do that. Sometimes they would use corporal punishment. They would beat. They would use the rod. They, they, they were oftentimes very, very um, stringent in how they ruled the life of a child it was like round-the-clock supervision by a domineering harsh taskmaster a pedagogos who would follow you around so think about this children if you're nine or ten years old do you want to have a pedagogos following you around everywhere slapping you on the wrist back in those days you couldn't go into your room and play video games If you went into the room and got in trouble, the pedagogos would be right there telling you what you needed to do until you were about 18 or 19 years old, until you were about an adult. Paul uses that imagery to say, that's what the law is like. The law of God to a person who doesn't have Jesus is like a round-the-clock taskmaster that's always telling you what to do. It never brings freedom. It never brings release. It's always just going to chide you and tell you what you're doing and what you're not doing. But notice what Paul says. Verse 24. The law was our guardian until, key word there, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. You see, when Christ came, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he rose again, he paid the penalty for our sins, he fulfilled all the demands of the law, he released us from that bondage, until that time where you trust Christ for salvation, the law is like a prison cell for you, and it's like being under a harsh taskmaster, and all it's going to do is lead you to say, I want out from under this, I want to be out from under the law. Because the law is nothing but a harsh taskmaster, it's a grumpy jailer, it's just out there to get me confined. In other words, the law had a purpose, but it's not until Jesus comes that we're freed from the law. So here's contrast number one that Paul paints for you. If you're without Christ... You don't have Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Paul says you are under the law. It's a weight. It's a curse. It's a taskmaster. It's a jail. You're in bondage and you want to get out. And the only way you can get out is by trusting in Jesus Christ alone to free you. You've got to come out from being under the law because all it's going to lead to is traumatic despair. You're just going to be in despair if you're under the law the law. That's contrast number one. Here's contrast number two. There's no middle ground here, okay? So, So there's no middle ground in this life. You're either under the law, you're either under sin, or you're the second contrast that Paul says here. Number two, contrast number two, being adopted in Christ leads to tremendous blessing. There are only two positions in this world that you can hold. You're either under the law or you're in Christ. Three times in this passage of Scripture, Paul uses the term in Christ. You're in Christ. You have union with Christ. You have a relationship with Christ. You have Christ as your Savior. You are in Christ. So the question then becomes, okay, what's the blessing, what's the tremendous blessing of being in Christ? If being under the law is a traumatic despair... And nobody wants to be there, and you've got to be released from that. Once you're released from that and you go into Christ through faith, what does that bring you? What's, what's the blessing of being in Christ? Well, Paul lists four blessings of being in Christ. So if you're here today, you don't want to be under the law. You don't want to be under sin. You want to be in Christ. How do you get in Christ? It's through faith in Christ. And what are the blessings of being in Christ? Well, let's look at these blessings. Here's number one. The blessing of sonship. Now, verse 26 is the apex or is the crescendo. It's really the high point of the entire chapter 3. Look at verse 26. In Christ, there's the in Christ language, you are all, what? Sons of God. Now, if you're a man, you can relate, right? Because if you're a man, you're a son, right? If you're a woman, you're thinking, now, wait a minute. What does it mean for me as a woman to be a son of God? I thought I was a daughter. Well, hold your horses. Because Paul is going to challenge the thinking of that day. This being a son of God is not anything that you've earned or anything that you can deserve. It's something, as a matter of fact, God has planned for us before time began. As a matter of fact, back in Ephesians chapter 1, we find out that God had planned this. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, even as he chose us in him Before the foundation of the world, so it was before we were created, before the world was created, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. What did he do? He predestined us for what? Adoption to himself as what? Sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You are a son of God, whether you're a male or a female, if you're in Christ. Now, why does he use the word son? In Paul's culture, it was illegal for a woman to own property or to inherit property. Only an heir could be a male. So Paul is being radical for his day by saying, listen, all the rights and privileges that were only inherent to males of that day are given to all believers, regardless of whether they're male and female, you are all sons of God, meaning you have all the rights and privileges of being an heir, which would have been radically offensive to Paul's day because women were never given that right. So Paul basically raises the bar and says, listen, if you're in Christ, you're a son, meaning you're an heir. You have all the rights and privileges of what it means to inherit God's grace. So it's radical that not only were women called sons, but Gentiles would never be called sons of God. Who was called sons of God back in the day? You go back to the book of Exodus chapter 4, you find out that only Israel was called sons of God. So Paul's being very radical. Listening, He's saying, listen, you're all sons of God. Whether you're Gentile, whether you're Jew, whether you're male, whether you're female, you are a son, which means you have all the rights and privileges that come with being adopted into God's family. The beginning of the Gospel of John says it this way. John 1, 12-13. But to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right To become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, here's the beauty of your salvation. Before you were in Christ, you were outside of Christ. You were an outsider, you were a rebel, you were offensive to God, you were unholy, you were hopeless, you were helpless, you were hell bound, you were separated from God, but once you had faith in Jesus, now you're in Christ and you're no longer an outsider, but you're an adopted son, you're an adopted child. So again, let me ask the question, what's a Christian? A Christian is a person who has God as their father. Now, here's why it gets confusing. confusing. Because most people in our world today think that we're all children of God. Everybody's a child of God. We're all God's children. Wrong. We're all God's creation. But we're not all God's children. Only those who have faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son, are God's children. If you're not in Christ, you're not one of God's children. You're still on the outside. How do you get in? You believe in Jesus, and once you believe in Jesus, you're put in Christ. You're adopted as a son of God. You become one of God's children. You become cleansed. You become forgiven. You become accepted. You become forever into God's family. So so women, if you have a hard time being called a son, get over it. Because it's biblical language, and it actually elevates your dignity because in that day, women could not ever be called sons. Women could never be inheriting uh, the the, the property or or their inheritance. Paul radically says, listen, all of us, Gentile, Jew, male, female, we're all sons of God. We're all in God's family. So that's blessing number one, this great privilege of being adopted. But look look at number two. It's amazing. The only chapter in the entire verse, the only verse in the entire book of Galatians that talks about baptism is this one, and we had a baptism today. So I didn't plan that. God did that. So here's number two, the symbol of baptism. Okay, look at verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul mentions baptism. He's probably referring back to Acts chapter 14, when Paul, on his first missionary journey, went and planted the churches in Galatia and baptized the new believers. Now, now, we need to be careful here to talk about what baptism is and what baptism isn't. We cannot ever say baptism is required for salvation, because what has Paul been arguing all along in Galatians? He's been, he's, gone, he's been over backwards to say it's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's not circumcision. It's not dietary laws. So we dare not add baptism onto a requirement. So baptism is not essential to your salvation, but baptism is a sign, it's a symbol, it's an outward way of, of, of showing. It's like your adoption papers. When you go get legally adopted, you get adoption papers to publicly, visibly show that you've been adopted. Baptism is that public way of letting everybody know when you stand in the waters of baptism that you have radically made a, a personal commitment to Jesus. You believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. You're saying goodbye to your old life. You're walking in newness of life. You're making a radical commitment to follow Jesus, and you're going public with that. But I want to show you something in this passage of Scripture. Notice in verse 27 that Paul links baptism into putting on Jesus or clothing yourself with Jesus. This whole idea of putting clothes on in relationship to baptism. Now, now what, what does that mean? Have you ever thought about baptism as putting clothes on? Paul links those two together. Let me again explain the ancient culture to you. In that ancient culture, when you became an adult, okay, so from the age of 9 to about 17 or 18, you're under the guidance of a pedagogos, and you would wear a crimson-bordered outfit to mark the fact that you were a child. When you became an adult, you took off that crimson-bordered outfit, and you put on the white toga. And the white toga was an outward way of showing everybody, I'm no longer a child. I'm no longer under the tutelage of a pedagogos of a Tarsh Taskmaster. I'm now an adult. I've put on adult clothes. I get to wear the white toga. So Paul's playing on to that cultural inference there. But let me just tell you how baptism worked in the early church. Here's how baptism worked in the early church. And we have documentation of this from early ancient documents. Because persecution was really high and you had to be really sure who was in the church and who wasn't because they had informants and they had spies and you could be given over to the roman authorities you could be burned at the stake they would only baptize once a year on easter evening the night before easter they'd baptize once a year because they wanted to spend a whole year making sure you were legit that you weren't going to turn them in you would be discipled you would be um mentored, you would understand theology, and then on Easter Eve, you would be baptized. And here's what happens. Men and women would be baptized separately. Now, why do you say separately? Because they were baptized in the nude. They were baptized with no clothing on. Obviously, the male elders would baptize males. Godly women would baptize females. And so, in the baptismal waters, you would recite the Apostles' Creed. You would recite that you believed in Jesus like we did up here, and then you would be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You'd go under the water, you'd come back up, and here's what would happen. Once you came out of the water, the person that baptized you would give you a white robe to cover your nakedness to show that now you were walking in newness of life. Now, we obviously don't practice that today for various reasons you understand. But here's the point when you're baptized, it's this image of newness of life. It's as if you're, you're putting on this outward robe that shows that you have a new life. And so Paul addresses this also in the book of Colossians chapter 3, 10 to 11. He says, put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. Now, so baptism is a picture of your death of your old life, you're raised to new life. It's this whole idea of, of clothing yourself with Christ. Now, I want you to think about clothing for a moment, okay? So hopefully all of you came in wearing clothes today. Clothes do a couple of things. Clothes identify you. In our culture today, it's getting a little bit more crazy because of androgyny and other weird things. But hopefully, I can tell you're a male or a female by the clothes you wear. It's an identity marker. Your clothing identifies who you are. So when you're clothed with Christ, it identifies who you are, that you're walking with Christ. Also think about this. Clothing sticks close to you and goes wherever you go. I've never seen, like unless your clothing's really loose, but hopefully your clothing stays with you wherever you go. When you're out in public, your clothing stays with you. When you're walking out in the Christian life, Jesus stays with you. He's close to you. You're walking with him. And also, what does clothing do? Clothing covers your nakedness. Jesus covers your spiritual nakedness. Jesus covers your sin. And so this whole idea of being clothed in Christ means that we take him as our Savior. We're a new person. We identify with Jesus. He covers us. He clothes us. Everything about us is we identify with Jesus. And it's tied to baptism as that public act where you're saying to everybody, I'm making this public. I'm going under the water. I'm coming back up to show everybody that I'm going public with my faith, like those that did this morning. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So baptism is a symbol of your death, your burial, your resurrection of your life. You're walking in newness of life. It's it's, it's a belief in the, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. But let me just say this. You are also baptized into a church family. And Paul's going to address that. This whole, issue, whole issue of being adopted into a church family. If you're in Christ, if you're clothed with Christ, if you're baptized with Christ, you are never to live in isolation on your own out there with no connection to a church family. The, the New Testament knows nothing of it. You're baptized into a church family, and thus you act the way a baptized clothed in Christ in Christ person acts with other believers. So here's the thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12:13 for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body Jews or Greeks, slave or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. We're baptized into the one body. So here's number 3. The unity of the church family. I could spend a month of Sundays talking about verse 28 because of how it's been misinterpreted in recent years to say what Paul never meant it to say. But what Paul does in verse 28 is give three divisions that that culture would recognize that I think is true in our culture of how it's distorted, how it's abused, how it's been misunderstood, and how those three divisions come crashing down in the life of a church. Now, I want you to think about the questions that our culture asks or the things that our culture notices. What color is your skin? It's a big deal. What language do you speak? What's your ethnic background? How much money do you make? How much money do you not make? Why are you so poor? Why are you on welfare? Oh, she's just a stupid blonde. He's a male chauvinist. We hear these types of things all the time. And what Paul is saying is that these barriers, this type of language, this type of outlook comes crashing down In the life of the church. And he's addressing three barriers. So look at verse 28. The first is the ethnic or the racial barrier. Verse 28, what does he say? This is right on the heels, in context of being in Christ, being baptized, putting on Christ. It's talking about how we relate to each other in the church family. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Okay, Jew nor Greek. It's It's the ethnic barrier. Greek and Roman wealthy men back in Paul's day, regularly thanked Zeus and Apollos and the pagan gods. They thanked the gods that they were not born barbarians, they were not born slave, and they were not born women. They prayed to the gods and thanked them every day. Jewish men, you get this from the teachings of the rabbis, Jewish men would thank God every day, and this would be sometimes prayers in the synagogues. They would pray a blessing and they would say, Thank you, Lord, I wasn't born a Gentile. Thank you, Lord, I wasn't born a slave. And thank you, Lord, I wasn't born a woman. That's what the the Jewish males would pray. Now, these differences don't mean that we should not acknowledge distinctions. I mean, obviously, there's different ethnicities in the church. There's different genders in the church. There's different socioeconomic issues in the church. We can't downplay distinctions, but what we're saying is we don't want to have sinful divisions. In Christ, the ethnic barrier comes crashing down. Sadly, if this is not understood it could lead to the sin of racism. Racism is absolutely sinful. We should never mistreat or malign or show prejudice to anybody based simply upon skin color or ethnicity. In a church, we fellowship, we interact, we love and encourage across all ethnic, all racial barriers. Those barriers come down. There's neither Jew nor Greek. When you walk into uh, the life of a church, all those ethnic distinctions come crashing down because we're all one in Christ. No racism, no prejudice. Okay, the second barrier is the socioeconomic barrier. There's neither slave nor free. Okay, the world operates based upon socioeconomic strata. Which side of the tracks are you on? You, you identify with people that make the same amount of money that's in the same economic bracket, and so sometimes poor people can look down upon rich people, rich people can look down upon poor people. We can have all these different looking downs and, and, and not getting along based upon socioeconomic barriers. And if, if this is abused, if this is somehow taken out of whack, it can lead to oppression. It could lead to materialism. It could lead to taking advantage of people. It could lead, lead to um, you know, mistreating well off or shunned, and they're, they're resented by the less fortunate, and it goes both ways. And so in the life of the church, socioeconomic issues come crashing down, racial and ethnic issues come crashing down. And then the last barrier is the sex or gender barrier. There's neither male nor female. Now we need to be very careful here, because this verse has been taken out of context to promote extreme feminism, Among some evangelical groups to say there's no distinctions in the life of the church or life of the home between male and female. Let me just say here to Manuel, if you're new or you need to understand where we stand, we are what we call complementarian in our theology, which means that we believe that males are to be the spiritual leaders of their homes, wives are to graciously submit to the leadership of their husbands, and in the church, men are to be the spiritual leaders who serve as the elders and the preachers in the life of the church. Okay, so, so th- this verse right here is not saying that there's no distinctions in the life of the home or the life of the church. What Paul is saying here is that the sinner of chauvinism or misogyny or sexism or mistreatment of women should have no place in the life of the church. I need to address an elephant in the room that's hovering over our denomination. Maybe you have no idea what's going on because you don't even know that we're a Southern Baptist church. This past week, one of the most high-profile people in our denomination for the past 40 years was fired from a seminary position because of his treatment of women and how he dealt with a rape case that happened in the life of the seminary, how he counseled a woman who was in an abusive relationship, the language he's used about women. He personally did not do anything uh, morally against a woman. It was his statements, and it was emails, and it was how he treated a woman and women, in his view of women, that basically got him fired. Because the way he acted was out of line with the gospel. Women are not second-class citizens in the life of the church. Women were some of the first eyewitnesses of Jesus. Martha was, and Mary and Martha were the first eyewitnesses, especially Mary Magdalene of the resurrection of Jesus. Early financial supporters of the apostles were women. They were valued servants in the early church. Some of, them were, some of them were martyrs like Perpetua and others. We have heroic missionaries in our denomination named after women. Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong and Nicey Murphy are all women that served the Lord. And women are tremendous contributors to the life of a church. But here's what happens. In history, in scripture, and even today, sinful men have done some things to wrong women to abuse women to silence women to objectify women and to do all ungodly types of things to prey upon women and that is sinful and should have no place in the life of the church should have no place in the life of a denomination we should never be a people that objectify silence i'm not going to tell you what he said well maybe i should I'll tell you, because you can go read it after this. Go Google it. Uh, 2015, there was a woman who was raped on the seminary campus, and there was an email documentation of his words that said, "To the chief of staff who was in charge of security, I had her in alone with in a room to interrogate her to break her down." That was the wording of the seminary president. No Christian man should ever be alone in a room with another woman. No seminary president should ever talk that way about a rape victim, and no seminary president should ever put it in writing that he was there to break her down. That was one of the reasons he was fired, because of his attitude towards women. So what I'm saying here and what Paul is saying is that all forms of evil, the evil abuses of racism, of materialism, of classism, of prejudices, of sexism, of chauvinism, of all these types of abuses should come crashing down in the life of a church because we're in Christ. We've been baptized into Christ. We've clothed ourselves with Christ. And notice in verse 28, at the end of it, he says, you're all one person, literally. You're all one person in Christ Jesus. So it's the unity of the church family. So we have the privilege of being adopted. We have the the, the wonderful symbol of, of baptism. And then we have the unity of the church family and how we're to get along. But here's the fourth blessing the heir of the promise. There's that final verse, verse 29. If you're, God, if you're Christ's, and literally in the text there, if you belong to Christ, it's literally in the original language, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs According to the promise. Now remember, men could only be heirs in that culture. Women couldn't be heirs. And he's saying you're all. If you're Christ, if you're in Christ, if you belong to Christ, if you have Jesus as your Savior, you are an heir of the promise. You belong to God as your Father forever, and Jesus as your Savior forever. Romans 8, 14-17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For if you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into slavery... But you've received the spirit of adoption, the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we're children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. We're heirs. And we didn't inherit this because we were so good. We didn't inherit this because of our moral record. We didn't inherit this because we earned it or we, were, or we deserved it or we worked hard for it or we were born into the right family. We inherited this simply because we were in Christ and God gave it to us as a free gift of grace. <clears throat> so being adopted into God's family is one of the highest privileges of your salvation. Now let me issue just a really quick warning here. If you're not in Christ you're not in God's family. If you're not in God's family, you don't receive the inheritance, which is heaven. Instead, you receive the opposite, the pains of hell. So if you're not in Christ this morning, repent of your sins and believe in Jesus and put your faith in Jesus so that you can become a true child of God and receive the inheritance of eternal life. And just briefly... When you think about adoption, what should this produce in your heart? What should this this really bring about in your life? Well, our adoption shows us the greatness of God's love. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know Him. See what kind of love so, adoption shows us the way that God has loved us. Let that sink in, that God loves us. He's become our Father. Our adoption grants us assurance of our salvation. It grants us assurance of our salvation. Romans chapter 8, 29-30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that... We might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Because God started it in eternity past, he's going to carry it on into eternity future. You know because God has adopted you, he's never going to leave you. He's never going to write, write you out of his will. He's going to be with you forever. What God started, he's going to finish. Philippians 1, 6 i I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of jesus christ and also our adoption gives us unwavering hope of our future in heaven unwavering hope first john 3 2 beloved we are god's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him Because we shall see him as he is. When Jesus comes back, we're going to see him as he is. Why? Because we're children of God. Do you truly understand this? This being adopted, this, this being a son. I know sometimes for women it's hard to understand. This being adopted, being a child. Does it sink into you? Do you truly understand it? Do you value it? Do you daily remind yourself by preaching the gospel to yourself that that I'm I'm loved, I'm accepted, I'm adopted, I'm forever into God's family. He's never going to cast me out. Do do you dwell on this? Do you think about it? Do you love Jesus for it? Do you look forward to that ultimate family reunion? You know there's going to be a great family reunion. You know that, right? It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. For all the redeemed of all the ages are going to gather together for one huge family reunion, neither Greek nor slave, male, female, Jew, Gentile. We're all going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb at that final family reunion with God as our Father and Jesus as our Lord. Do you feel the joy, the thrill, the hope of being adopted? Sometimes we just need to let it sink in. Being adopted by God as your father is the highest privilege of your salvation. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you live in the freedom of it. I hope that you're like John that says, See, behold what kind of love that God has for us that he would make us children of God. And so we are. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And think about, as we take the Lord's Supper here in just a few moments, what it means to be an adopted child of God forever in his family. This morning, we know that when we come to the Lord's table, it's a means of grace whereby we remember your death, Jesus, but we also celebrate your very real presence with us where you grant us spiritual nourishment. You feed our souls And Lord, today as we take the Lord's Supper, let it be a reminder that we are sons and daughters of the living God and that we've been adopted forever into God's family and we have all the rights and privileges that come with that, the blessing, the joy, the security, the assurance, the hope that God will never leave us or forsake us, he'll never write us out of his will, we will forever have that inheritance waiting for us in heaven. Let us enjoy being sons of God this morning as we take the Lord's Supper together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.